if I could get over that mountain, maybe I could get over my loss of Nate. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Caroline Ballard. Just a note, this episode contains explicit references to depression and suicide and some graphic content. If you don't want to hear about those topics, now is the time to tune out. In this episode, we'll hear about a man who went into the wild to distract himself from his grief. Ever since Tyler Dunning was a teenager, He's struggled with debilitating depression. If you've never lived with it, it's almost like explaining to someone a color that they've never seen. And I think a big problem uh, and a misconception with depression in our society is that the easiest way to describe it and equate it is through sadness and sorrow. So people, when people think of someone depressed, they just think they're sad is a lot of the times it's almost the opposite of that, where you're not sad, you're indifferent. You've become numb to so many different things and you almost don't feel emotions in the way that you should. It restricts your ability to formulate a future. One of the ways Tyler made himself carry on was dedicating himself to helping other people. In 2010, he was living in California and working at an organization that aimed to free child soldiers in Uganda when he got some terrible news. A terrorist group had set off bombs in Kampala, Uganda during public screenings of a World Cup championship match. One of my best friends was over there kind of advocating and seeing the work we'd, we'd you know, worked so ardently for across the United States to raise funds for and while he was there, he was at this rugby field where they were showing the, the soccer match. And between the bombs that had gone off, one went off at an Ethiopian restaurant and another one at the rugby field, 74 people uh, were murdered and died that day. Uh, one of them was my friend Nate. The death of a friend is not an easy thing to go through. And Unfortunately, my youth has been kind of plagued with the death of friends. So when Nate died, it was kind of a continuation of dealing with trauma and loss. But terrorism is a a tricky thing to deal with and to live through, Um, knowing that your friends, that innocent people, have have died at at the hands of other humans who are trying to propagate an agenda. It does foster a lot of frustration and anger and resentment. Just days after Nate's death, while he was still processing his grief, Tyler's life took another turn. He started a seasonal job in Estes Park, Colorado, just outside Rocky Mountain National Park, working at a wedding chateau. When I drove into the park, I was trying to find the chateau where I'd be working, and my, my eyes were instantly drawn to this monumental peak to the south. And so I pulled my car over and was at this lookout and another gentleman was there and I asked him, I'm like, what is that? And he said, that one with the notch missing, it's Long's Peak. So from the very onset, it was at the forefront of my thought. I was like, I have to get to the top of that. Because in the back of my head, if I could get over that mountain, maybe I could get over my loss of Nate. 
and not just Nate, but my whole life I've had pretty abject depression and suicidal tendencies. So the loss of friends, the loss of a friend to terrorism really only kind of compelled those tendencies and thoughts and thinking that, you know, humanity is evil and that life's not worth living and that I don't have a purpose or a trajectory. So a huge way for me at that point to deal with the grief was reconnecting with the natural world. Tyler grew up in Bozeman, Montana, where being outside is a way of life. Going outside and hiking and snowshoeing and skiing and ice skating, like they're just part of the, the community. Um, so then being down in Estes, it was kind of an extension of that, but I had that grief propelling it where now I was hiking for a reason. I was going into the mountains for a reason. Often doing it alone, looking, you know, for solace, looking for some sort of comfort. Even though Nate, like wilderness seems expansive, it almost creates a myopic view where it's you amongst this, as this tiny entity in this huge world, and you feel like equal times you don't have purpose and you have complete purpose because you don't have this phone in your hand that is linking you to every other thing happening in the world at, the t at times or making you feel insignificant or showing you that someone somewhere is always playing your part better than you. Like you're just out in the woods and all of that dissipates and you feel the wind and you feel like you hear the rustling of leaves and the gravel under your feet and and a lot of the times you are you're you're straining yourself in these strenuous environments whether it's hiking or maybe being out in the winter and surviving opposed to asking yourself why should i keep surviving And as he went outside to find solace, he also started training. I was getting used to the elevation. I was living about seven and a half thousand feet and going into the park and doing these, these hikes, which I knew were going to lead up and culminate to me trying to overcome that mountain. When you decide to hike Long's Peak, I'm not a morning person. And I don't even know if this constitutes as the morning because you have to wake up at like 3 a.m., 3 or 4 a.m., get to the trailhead, and then it's a seven and a half mile hike up to the summit. Come the end of the summer, I want to say it was late August or early September, I, I made my first attempt at hiking that mountain. I woke up really early, made the drive over to the trailhead, um, and attempted it uh, on my own. I wanted to go solo, it felt important to me. So at first you're hiking in the dead of the night, you can't really see anything, you have a head torch on. At that point you're about 9,000 feet elevation, um, so you still you're still hiking through the forest. Then, once uh, the sunrise kind of breaks, you're right about tree line, meaning that the trees can't grow at that elevation. So it becomes mostly just rocks and grasses and shrubs. And you hike a bit further um, until you get to this area called the Boulder Field, which it's the last mile and a half of the hike. And that's where it becomes the most dangerous part of the hike because people die on that mountain every year. Uh, and you always kind of hear about it when you're living out there, like, oh, another hiker has died on Long's Peak. And a man had actually just fallen to his death a week before I went up there to attempt it. I got to the boulder field and it's from the terminal point when you're looking up at the mountain, it kind of fans out and there's just 
uh, talus everywhere, just boulders that have come come down from the summit. And some of them are like the size of Volkswagen Beetles. So you're climbing over these things and you're looking for something called the keyhole. The problem also is that there's something called the false keyhole. So when I went up there to hike it, I actually ended up going the wrong way. You're supposed to go to the right, which is to the west, and I went to the left, which is to the east. And so I was following this false keyhole, which perpetually got more and more dangerous, it seemed. In the back of my head, I was saying, I don't think this is safe, because I was getting closer and closer to this cliff face called uh, the Diamond, which a lot of people rock climb, and below it is this big lake called Chasm Lake. And I kept getting higher and higher to the point where I started seeing climbing bolts in the rock. And I said, okay, I've definitely gone the wrong direction here. So then I had to navigate my way back down, which was quite dangerous. And at that point, I'd know, I knew I'd, I'd wasted too much time um, to actually go to the, the real keyhole and finish the hike because you don't want to be on the summit past noon because thunderstorms can roll in rather easily. And um, I think something like six people have died from, from lightning on the mountain. So at that point, I knew I'd been defeated and uh, had to come, come to terms with the fact that I wasn't going to get to the summit of Long's Peak. It was, it was too lofty of me to think that I, I could overcome my grief in such a short period of time, and the mountain was a reminder of that. So I kind of retreated from Long's at that point, defeated, hoping there'd be another time and place for it sometime in the future. After that is when I kind of formulated the goal of visiting all the U.S. national parks. Tyler spent the next four years visiting national parks all over the country. I think within, within our country, specifically within our ideology of what a national park is, people see that as, as paramount. It's like the epitome of what the natural wild world is, especially when you see images like Yellowstone National Park or the Yosemite Valley, you see these, you see big monumental faces like Half Dome and El Capitan and that was my man, mindset initially. I was like, I need to see all the most amazing places in the country. What I think the park system is really great for though, and I usually compare it to literature, is that national parks are similar to like Harry Potter, where, you know, Harry Potter is like goblins and ghouls and wizards and these magnificent things. The parks are like that. They have grizzlies and mountains and the oldest trees, the biggest trees, the tallest trees. And through that, I mean, you're not going to give a kid like David Foster Wallace and say, read this, learn how to love literature. You're going to give them Harry Potter. And then they make their way through the nuances to the more difficult things. So with the national park system, People are drawn to the amazing monumental things, but then they start to learn the nuances. They start to appreciate wildflowers. They start to appreciate meadows and prairie, the things that aren't usually celebrated. You know, I was kind of coming to the terminal point of my 20s, about to be 30 years old, and 15 years of living with hard depression, and really, like, always trying to find reasons not to kill myself and reasons to distract myself. Uh, and that's kind of what my 20s were. We're doing all these like really cool adventures and fun things. And people look at my life and they're like, oh, I'm so I'm jealous of all these things you've done and these adventures you've been on. And for me, they were always just a distraction. They were like, I look back and I'm very grateful for them, but 
it was never an enjoyable time in my life. And so when I kind of formulated the goal to visit all the parks, it gave me, as arbitrary as it, as it was, it gave me this new purpose to be alive, um, always knowing that like there was parks to go to and things to learn and books to read. But Long's Peak and what it meant was always in the back of his mind, almost haunting him. I would open a book that I was reading and there would be pictures of it or um, with the new U.S. quarter system they released, they had a national park series and one of them had Long's Peak on it, I think, or else it was the Colorado quarter. I was just kind of seeing it everywhere. Oh, I'd hear a story of some another person who had died on the mountain. I always knew that I needed to go back. It almost became like an adversary where I, I just knew I needed to conquer this thing. And I knew that um, when the time was right, I would, I'd return. It was July of 2014. I flew out there and had been talking to some friends who were working at the Chateau and went out there with the intentions of hiking back to the top of Long's Peak. So one of the last days I was there, a friend and I, her name's Haley, we decided to make another attempt at it. So we woke up at 3 a.m. again, drove over there, hiked up, and... This time, it kind of, I kind of knew it was right, and I'd had four year, you know, four long years between my first attempt and this attempt. And so when I went back to Long's Peak in 2014, I was in a much healthier state of mind, even though I've had, I had some other friends kind of die within that time frame, to suicide, to accidents. And so when I was moving my way up that mountain, I knew it was kind of the capstone on this era of my life and putting it behind me and moving forward and becoming a healthy person. When I got to the boulder field, and this time had a keen idea of where the actual keyhole was, a gentleman coming down the mountain, he said, "Um, just so you know, someone just died on the mountain up ahead, and it's very gruesome. So if you don't want to see that, you should probably turn around. Uh, So with that knowledge, my friend Haley decided not to continue on further. And so it was just gonna be me um, making that last effort to make it up to the top of Long's. So when you go through the keyhole, you kind of corkscrew around the rest of the mountain. There's a mile and a half left. And that's where it becomes very difficult to breathe because you're up about maybe 13,000 feet elevation, working your way way towards 14,000 feet. And so you can really only take a few steps at a time before you have to stop and catch your breath. But you also move through these areas called the ledges and the trough and the narrows. And if there's strong enough wind, you can get blown off and fall and die. Sometimes there's ice, sometimes there's rock slides. Um, And so 60 people have died on Long's Peak kind of due to these circumstances. And so when I turned and went through the keyhole, um, I had been told that the the person had died further up ahead, but he'd actually died at the ledges just when you go through the keyhole and so I turned and I kind of saw blood and and brains on the trail coming down perpendicularly and uh, not too far below was the body. There was a couple of things that were were odd about the incident in that the area in, in which this man had fallen Seemed, it seemed really suspicious because it wasn't a place you would be hiking. He would have had to have gone 
really far off trail to have fallen where he did fall from. And he was also only in his underwear. <clears throat> and so instantly I knew it was a suicide. It didn't feel like happenstance, even though I'm not like a strong believer in things happening for a reason. Tragedy and comedy, have there's such a thin line between them. It was almost comedic in that I was like, why is this happening to me now? Like, why today? And um, I also just, I just thought of that story arc I'd been living and I said, this is too bizarre to be true. Like, but... I also knew there was a hard lesson in it, and it wasn't lost on me. We create these dichotomies between wilderness and civilization, and one of the biggest reasons we do that is to counteract the idea that death is okay and that death is natural and that it's a part of the life cycle. So we come up with all these theories as to what happens after death. We hide it away, we cover it up, we you know, paint people in makeup and we present them as still living when they're dead. We cover their bodies. Police tell us to keep moving. But out there in the wild with this body, I had as much time with it as I wanted and needed to just sit and think and, and know exactly what this young man had gone through um, and what had brought him to that mountain because... It should have, it should have been me. Like, there was so many times I was so close to killing myself. And there I was, like, it was, death brought me to that mountain, and I thought, de like, the mountain was going to get me over it, and yet it was only showing me that <clears throat> this is a part of, this is a part of the life cycle, and you'll never get over it. It's always the, there's always going to be difficult things we're moving through, and there's always going to be afflictions and mental torments and mental issues that we have to get through, and we're always going to have to say goodbye to people at some point, sometimes a lot sooner than we think we're supposed to or we have to. And so I kept going, and I made it to the top of that mountain. And after four years, I, you know put a capstone on that half decade of hurt and I gave that curse that had been given to me back to the heavens and I said I'm done with this I'm done with Long's Peak and I'm free storyteller was Tyler Dunning. His National Park's journey is the basis for a new short film and an essay collection called A Field Guide to Losing Your Friends. If you or someone you know is struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number is 1-800-273-TALK. I'm Caroline Ballard. The show is produced by Aaron Jones, Anna Rader, and Micah Schweitzer. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. 
It's human nature.